Well, good morning to everyone and happy Sunday after Thanksgiving. And that song that we just sang, I'm still trying to figure out, that's the New Year's song, right? That's New Year's, right? I wasn't sure if it was happy birthday or what was it at the beginning there. But at the end of that, that was a fantastic song. And I think for everyone, that's what we're singing on January 1st this year, right? Everyone, we got to find that song wherever you are on December 31st. That's the song that's got to be sung because I love upbeat, happy songs like that. So thank you to our fantastic music team for leading us in that. Welcome to everyone to The Well here at STSA. My name is Father Anthony. We're happy that you're joining us here today. We're starting a new series. And now that Thanksgiving is over, is behind us, and finally December is here. Somehow it was a week after Thanksgiving and it still wasn't December somehow. Now we can turn our attention to the greatest time of the year, which is the season of Christmas. And we here in the church, we know that Christmas isn't what the rest of the world makes it out to be. All right, so we know that Christmas isn't just Santa Claus and presents and eggnog and all that kinds of stuff. We love that stuff, but we know that Christmas is more. We know Christmas for us is the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God takes flesh, was born of a virgin to save mankind from the depths of sin that they had fallen into. We know for us that Christmas is all about the promise of the Father from before all ages, Okay, that he would take flesh and send his son to us. We know that generations and generations and generations had waited for this day of Christmas. And when Jesus was born, it was the most glorious day ever. We know about the virgin, about the angel came to her. We know about the shepherds. We know about the wise men. We know about the host of the heavenly who chanted and sung when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We know all about the glorious day of Christmas. But did you know that when Christmas actually happened the first time, nobody knew about it. There was no like breaking news. There was no like reporters on the scene. There was no even like a week later or two weeks later or a month later, like guess what happened last month in, in Bethlehem? You'll never guess who was born, God. And in fact, 99.99999% of the world had no clue about the most important, the single most important day in the history of mankind was Christmas. That's the one day that even all of society divides the world into AD and BC, before Christ, okay, and the year of our Lord, so after Christ. But when it actually happened, no one knew. No newsflash, no breaking news, no, no, no after school special about the subject. In fact, did you know that Jesus lived for the first 30 years of his life, the first 30 years of his life, in pretty much anonymity? He was just a son of some carpenter, okay? He was over there in Galilee, but Galilee's kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to make fun of any other county. Like, think of a county out in the middle of nowhere, okay? It's just like, you know, one of those places, like, like Jerusalem was where all the action happened. That's the priests and the Pharisees. But Galilee is like, you know, way out there, like, you know, past the toll road or whatever it may be. And there was Jesus, and, you know, maybe his neighbors knew he was a nice guy. And maybe, maybe there were some rumblings down in Judea, which is like the county a little bit further south. But for the most of his life, no one even knew he existed. In fact, it wasn't even until after Jesus not only died, but rose from the dead, that his story started to get out. But even then, when Jesus' story started to get out, it wasn't the story that we know today. You know what the story was? If you were in Rome and someone told you, hey, I heard this thing about Jesus, these rumblings about Jesus. You know what the story was? The story was there's this crazy group of atheists, 
atheists. Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't worship the gods. Because the rest of the world worshiped Zeus and, and you, know, uh, uh, you know, Hermes or whoever it may be. And there's these, there's these group of atheists who don't worship any of those gods. What's wrong with them? Well, they worship a criminal who was crucified and they claim that that criminal rose from the dead. That was the first news report about Christianity. That's what people heard about it. So get out of your mind this idea that Jesus was born and the heavens, the host came down and people were waiting and bowing and the whole world was transformed on Christmas day. It wasn't like that at all. Jesus was born in anonymity, lived most of his life in anonymity. And when he started to get some notoriety, they were his followers were basically called a group of atheists who were kind of messed up in the head because of this crazy belief that they had. So how then, as we start this series, how then did Christianity go from that, barely a blip on the radar, to where it is today? 2.2 billion people in the world call themselves Christian. Everywhere you go, okay, like I said, the world is divided based on Christ. Okay, historically, everyone uses AD and BC. Expressions all over our society are biblical expressions, which are like, for example, a good Samaritan. There's a good Samaritan law, which a lot of people may not even realize comes from the Bible. And there's all kinds of Christian influence in everything that we see around us. How did Christianity go from that, that little blip on the radar to where it is today? Well, unfortunately, many of us think, okay, let's look in the Bible and see what the Bible tells us. Unfortunately, the New Testament doesn't help us here because the New Testament tells the story of about the first 30 to 50 years of Christianity but it leaves out a lot of details. And unfortunately, by the time the New Testament ends, it ends kind of abruptly, doesn't say like happily ever after, just kind of ends, like the church is growing, the church is spreading and there's persecution. But again, it's still, it's still a blip on the radar, like barely penetrated society. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of ends. The story just kind of ends. And then we find out later on from church history that all those guys who were preaching it, all those guys got killed. In fact, if you look at the last of the apostles to die was John, the evangelist. Okay, the rest of them got martyred. He was the only one who died a natural death. He died in exile. He died in roughly the year 100 AD. Okay, and he wrote his writings near the end of his life. He wrote the gospel according to St. John, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. If you look at the time that he himself died around the year 100 AD, the New Testament had all been written, but barely disseminated. There was like a letter over there somewhere in Corinth. Okay, and then there's talk that there's a letter somewhere in Galatia from Paul. And then we know Peter wrote something, but no one really, like, you, you didn't have access. You couldn't put it online or, or, or email it to me or anything like that. What about the Gospels? Again, the Gospels were all documented, but they were really kind of scattered. There was, like, some writings over there in Egypt, some scattered writings about the life of Jesus. And then there were some writings over there, but really, like, all these people are saying all this stuff about Jesus, but how do we know what's true? How do we know what's false? There was no Bible to refer to. So my question is, how did the church go from the first century, barely blip on the radar, scattered all over the place, to where it is today? The answer to that question is a group of people known as the fathers of the church. There's a group of people who gave birth to our faith in the same way, like I say, fathers, and you as a patriotic American, you think of founding fathers. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin never gets enough credit for what he did, okay? We think of the founding fathers, who are they? They're the guys who came along when America was nothing. It was just a concept, 
in their heads and in their hearts. It was just barely a seed. And they fought for that seed. And they planted that seed and they nurtured it and they allowed it to grow into what we see today. None of us would be here as Americans if it weren't for our fathers who came before us and founded our nation and founded the, the, the fabric of, of who we are as a country. And for that, we owe them a great debt. Well, did you know that in the church is the same thing? There's a group of fathers in the church who the same way, that the church they received was but a seed, but a foundling that just barely started to show maybe some sprouting. And they were the ones who nurtured it and who cultivated it and allowed it to grow into what it is that we see today. They're the ones, for example, who helped us figure out all these accounts of Jesus. Like I said, there was no New Testament at the time. At the, at the year 100, there was no New Testament. Okay, there was writings here and there, but it was not compiled until the fourth or fifth century. It was no, there was no one to say, that's accurate, that's accurate, that's not accurate, that one's garbage. There was no one to say that. These were the guys who told us. They said these writings, because you know there's lots of gospels that are out there. Okay, we know the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there's other gospels that we were given, thanks to these fathers, that said, you know what, this stuff is not legit because we were the disciples of the guys who wrote it, and we were the disciples of the disciples of the guys who wrote it, and this one is not legit. They, they helped us authenticate what it was true and what is not true. They're the ones who gave us things that we take for granted, things like Jesus is God. You know, there's no actual verse in the New Testament that says Jesus is God that plainly and that bluntly, and many times, like we can say, how do we know Jesus is God, and we look to the New Testament and we refer to it, but you know, these were the guys who gave that language Okay, and these were the guys who put words to a lot of the questions that we struggle with. How can God, like things that we struggle with today that we've read about, we've heard about, how can one God be three persons? These were the guys who formed the doctrines and the teachings that explain all this stuff to us today. Who these guys were, these guys took an infant church and they took it out of its diapers and they brought it out of its diapers. And in fact, I said where the Christian church came from the first century to today, in fact, the church of the year 100 it took them less than 250 years, within less than three centuries. This fledgling church, barely a blip on the radar, became the official state religion of the entire Roman Empire and was not mandated, but became, this is what you had to do to be on the in crowd, was to be a Christian. So what we're going to do here in this series is we want to talk about these father guys. And we want to see how they brought the church out of its infancy, from its diapers, into adulthood. Parents, the infant years are the most fragile. Like the infant years of our country, when the founding fathers were there, those were the most critical. Those were the formative years. And those who are caring for an infant have to be very gentle and very fragile. When you got a teenager, it doesn't matter. You, it doesn't matter to them. Like they, they, they bounce right back. But when it's in its infancy, that's when it's most fragile. The same thing with the church. The church in this, in this in, in infant time could have gone lots of different directions. For example, one of the things that they spoke about heavily was like the hierarchy of the church and structure in the church. And had they not put in what they put in, the church could have gone into all kinds of different directions. They talked about the sacraments of the church and the true meaning. Had they not given us what they gave us on the sacraments, we could today say, what's the point and what's the need and why do we need those things? And they're a waste of time and why not cut it? But they showed us those important things. They gave us the true teachings and they did it with nothing to rely on other than the spirit of God within them. There's a great quote from our patron saint here, Saint Athanasius, who talks about the true church. Okay, this is back before there was Catholic church or Protestant church or Baptist church or Orthodox church or Greek or, there was none of that stuff. There was just the church. 
And he said the church is what Christ taught, what the apostles preached, and what the fathers preserved. The fathers give us confirmation. They're the link. Okay, this is the answer. They're the link between what we read in the New Testament, life of Christ and his apostles. We know that. And then we know what we have today. The link between the two is the fathers of the church. And in this series of untold stories, what we're going to do is every week, we're going to look at one life of one of the church fathers who you may never have heard of, a hidden figure of church history, so to speak. And we're going to see what lessons we can learn from them. And I will start this off by saying, you may not thought you could never learn anything from these boring church fathers, but I will challenge you to stick with me on this one because you will see what I believe is the message of the church fathers is needed today more than ever because they give us confirmation on a lot of the things that we struggle and question the authenticity of, they will give us confirmation. Before I get into today's hero or of untold story, a lot of times when you say church fathers, people say, show me the list. Where's the list of church fathers? Like, give me the list. Like, give me the list of the names of the church fathers. And in the same way that the founding fathers of America, there isn't really like a list. It's not like a club, like an initiation where like you're in or you're out, but everyone kind of knows who it is. It's people who lived during a certain period of time who contributed to the founding of our nation. And in the same in the church, it's people who lived during a certain period of time who contributed strongly and heavily to the founding of the church or the development of the church, I should say, not founding. Christ is the one who founded it. What's that period of time? That period of time is the second through fourth centuries. Second century meaning beginning the year 100, not 200. Second century begins in 100, okay? So from the year 100 to the end of the fourth century, which would be 399, so 400. So between 100 and 400, that's the period. That's the golden era. That's the period where the church, like I said, from diapers to adulthood, learned how to walk, learned how to talk. The church was able to stand. By the time 400 rolled around, the church was firm in her beliefs, her doctrine, okay, was pretty much in place, middle of 400s, but let's just say 400. Before the, the first century, that was the period of Christ in the New Testament. We call that the apostolic era, okay? That's the era of Peter and Paul and John and those guys. That's a special category all by itself. After the fourth century, beginning in the fifth century, that's where you started to have splits in the churches, all right? That's where you started to have schisms and these guys, you know, excommunicating them and excommunicating them. And this is where the church started to be divided. But at the golden era was that in between there, okay? The expression that, 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 that Father Nathaniel used to always say is pre-denominational, okay? It was the period before there was denominations. It was the period before there was, there was splits in the church. We were all one. We may speak different languages, be in different cities, but the church was one. And during that time, heroes stepped to the plate and carried the church and brought it to where it is today. Our first hero that we're going to talk about today is a great guy that you have never, ever heard of. But I hope by the end, I believe by the end of today, you want to name your kids after him until you hear his name, maybe. His name is Ignatius, Ignatius. Now, when I say St. Ignatius, all right, first thing is there's two Ignatiuses in church history. The more well-known one is Ignatius of Loyola. If you grew up in Catholic school, you may have heard of him. He's the guy who started the Jesuits. That's not who I'm talking about. He came around much later. This is Ignatius of Antioch. And this guy was a bishop in the city of Antioch in the second century at the very beginning. So tail end, of, tail end of the first century, which meaning before 100, 
and the beginning of the second century, meaning like 101, 102, 103, that kind of time period. Now, I say Antioch, and right away, bells should go off in your head. Why? Because Antioch is one of the most important cities in church history. And if you read the New Testament, you know, again, Antioch is to church history, kind of like, you know, in American history is kind of like the city of Philadelphia, right? Where all the stuff happened and where the stuff was signed. Like Antioch is kind of that place. It's not the capital officially, Rome was kind of the capital, but Antioch was visited by Paul and Barnabas. That was like one of their hubs, right? And they spent a lot of time and they're pretty important in church history. St. Peter also spent time in Antioch as well. And this was kind of like one of the major hubs of Christianity. Ignatius was the second successor to the apostles in Antioch. What that means, second successor. So let's say the apostles, Paul was there, Barnabas was there, and Peter was there. And then they started the church and they ordained successors. And then they all died. So the guy they ordained was the first successor. And then the guy, when he died, he ordained a successor. That's Ignatius. So they're two generations removed from St. Peter and St. Paul. That's a pretty close linkage, okay? That means it's like 50 years, generations about 20 years. So they had a pretty close, he had a pretty close connection with those guys who were pretty important. Because of his proximity to the apostles, because of his proximity to the people who had close proximity to Christ, when we read St. Ignatius and we read what he had to say, we can feel very confident that he's giving us the teaching of Jesus to his disciples. He taught us about the divinity of Christ. We'll see that in a little bit. He taught us about the Eucharist. He spoke a lot about church hierarchy and the role of priesthood and bishops and things like that. But by far, the most valuable insight that Ignatius gives to us, the part that if you read his writings, we won't go through all, we'll go through some piece of it, but the part that endears him to church history is he gives us a look into the life of a martyr on the day before he died. He gives us a sneak peek into what was going on inside the mind and the heart of someone who was about to be killed for his faith in a most brutal way possible. Let's go back and get the context. We are now roughly, like I said, end of, second, um, end of first century, start of second century. So let's just say for, 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 to make it easy, the year 100, roughly around there, between 100 and 110. So let's say year 100. At this point in time, Christianity is illegal. Christianity is outlawed. But it's not outlawed like in the way sometimes we think. It's not outlawed like there was always searching for anyone who's a Christian and then, and then they throw them in the pit. It wasn't like that. For the most part, worldwide persecution didn't really happen the way we think it did. Persecution was mainly a localized thing. And it happened because, let's say for example, we live in the city of Antioch. We're fine, you say you're Christian, what do we care? It doesn't really bother us, like we worship our gods, like no one really cared enough to do anything about it. But then what would happen? Then there'd be a disaster. Let's say a volcano would erupt or a hurricane or an earthquake. And how would they explain, they didn't understand science the way we do, so how did the world understand natural disasters in this first, second, third, fourth century? The gods are angry. The gods are angry, right? Like we used to think when it rained, like God is crying, stuff like that, okay? Like the gods are angry. That's why there's lightning. So why are the gods angry? We offered our sacrifice but you Christians, it's your fault. You're the reason that the gods are angry. So now we got to get you out of here because we hate your guts. And then they would attack the Christians. 
but not because it was like this, this agenda to remove Christians. Like it wasn't like a, like a Hitler kind of a thing. It was just to appease the gods who the Christians had angered so they would sacrifice and execute the Christians. Well, apparently something like that happened in Antioch when, when Ignatius was bishop. Whatever disaster happened, got to get rid of all the Christians, and they took Ignatius. But because Ignatius was a big guy, they said, we can't just kill him here in Antioch. That's a waste. We're going to take him to Rome, and we're going to put him on the big stage so the emperor and all the people in Rome, we're going to put him in the Colosseum and watch the wild beasts tear him apart. He's too big a fish to waste on just the locals. So what that began is a trip for Ignatius from Antioch through Asia Minor to a port city called Troas, and then a boat ride to Rome. While he was journeying, he was chained to 10 soldiers. And in his writings, he doesn't refer to them as soldiers. He calls them the 10 leopards, okay? Because they were brutes, okay? They were crude. They were horrible people. And he was chained to them, and he would march across Asia Minor. And as they would pass through a city, like I said, persecution was pretty localized. So they would pass through an area where their Christianity was, was not persecuted and was legal. And it was, it was not a problem to be a Christian. So as he would pass in that area, all the believers would come out to encourage him and to quote, as he wrote right here, to kiss the chains of a holy one about to die for Christ. And when they came to visit them, St. Ignatius would write letters and he would give them to the believers to distribute. And we're gonna take a look, he wrote seven letters. We're gonna take a look at some excerpts of some of his letters. And again, they give us a window into the soul of someone who's about to die for Christ. And the first thing that's gonna stand out you're gonna see is a man who doesn't die for an idea or a principle, but a man who dies for a person. Christianity is about a person. Look what he says right here to the church in Rome. He sends this ahead of his visit to Rome. This is the Ignatius' letter to the Romans chapter four. He says to them, this is the people where he's about to be persecuted, so he doesn't arrive there yet. He says, I am voluntarily dying for God. If that is, you do not interfere. I plead with you, do not do me an unseasonable kindness. Let me be fodder for wild beasts. Fodder means food. That is how I can get to God. I am God's wheat and I am being ground by the teeth of wild beasts to make a pure loaf for Christ. He's not sending a letter saying, when I'm there, Get ready to, 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 to ambush the guys and, and set the booby trap in the thing. You know, he's saying, please, don't do me an unseasonable kindness by thinking you're doing me something good by saving me from death. Goes on, chapter five. Forgive me, I know what is good for me. Now is the moment that I'm beginning to be a disciple. Powerful words of someone, like not just, like we, we, in our mind, the thought of someone walking to their death and not looking for any escape out of it, but in fact, pleading with the people to leave me because I want to be united with Christ, not just in my life, but in my death. Tough stuff. Watch this, what he says next in chapter six. Fully aware that his life, I'm sorry, that his martyrdom, that it wouldn't be an easy thing. So many people during this time wanted to be martyrs because it was like, we want to be one with Christ. But martyrdom is not something anyone can just walk into. So many people would say, we want to be a martyr. And then they would get there and then they would deny the faith. They would get scared, which we're not going to judge them because let him who was not sin cast the first stone because it's a lot harder than, than we would imagine. So he knew that so many people would get to that point and then, and then back away. So listen to what he says. Not only he says, don't interfere. Listen to what chapter six. 
He says, all the pleasures of the world, all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die on behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. For what shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. If when I arrive, I make a different plea, pay no attention to me. He says, if I get there and I get scared and I say, someone save me, don't listen to me. If I get there and I say, it's too hard, I don't want to suffer, don't listen to me. We see so many pictures of the martyrs in church history. Here we see the mind and we get to put it into words through St. Ignatius. We'll fast forward the story. Eventually he gets to Rome. We're not sure exactly how he died. Most likely he was eaten by wild beasts in the Colosseum for the entertainment of all the bloodthirsty crowd. And in that city where he was eventually carried back to Rome and in that city of Rome, I'm sorry, of Antioch, he was carried back to Antioch. And in the city, listen to this, that was home of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas at one point in time. Peter visited there, Paul visited there, and Barnabas visited there. In that city, which is the first city that the word Christian was ever used, that's what Acts chapter 11 says, they were first called Christian city of Antioch. It's an important city. The most beloved saint in the city of Antioch is Ignatius. And in fact, if you go to the Antiochian Orthodox Church and you see how their patriarchs are named, like how their pope, their patriarch is named, their name of the patriarch is always Mar, Ignatius, and then what his name is, okay? Mar, or if you grew up in the, the, you, you know, the Arabic way of saying that a lot of Mar Ignatius, you've heard that before? They're all called that, Mar Ignatius. So the current patriarch is Mar Ignatius, Ephraim II. The one before, before was Mar Ignatius, Zaka. And they're all called Mar Ignatius, whatever, because all their patriarchs are named not after Peter, not after Paul, but after St. Ignatius. So because of that, I say the guy is worthy of honor. And because of that, what we want to do right here is I want to take a look at just three things that he spoke about and he wrote about and see some of the lessons we can learn. This is a guy who has earned, he has the credibility. He walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk and he did so at a time where close proximity to the disciples and those guys who knew Christ. So three things that he talked about, okay? The first thing, we talked about many things, but three things that we want to talk about. He told us who Jesus was, and he talked about the divinity of Christ. Something that we take for granted, okay, is that Jesus is God, not just an appearance of God, but he is true God. He says this in one of his letters to a guy named Polycarp. He says, Jesus is above time, the timeless, the unseen, the one who became visible for our sakes, who was beyond touch and passion, yet for our sakes became subject to suffering and endured everything for us. Many people... I won't name names, but there are many sects, call it whatever it is that you want, which have this idea that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was a really good man, the best of the prophets, and then this idea of Jesus as God was introduced later on by Constantine, who was the emperor, and he had a political agenda because he had, like, they had their gods. He wanted to say, like, I'm in power, and this is my God, and Jesus is my God. But there's many people who say that Jesus as God didn't exist before the fifth century. That's just a new concept. But Jesus never said he's God. His disciples didn't believe he's God. And Ignatius proves them wrong right here. Because Ignatius shows us when they're very close proximity to Christ that, that Jesus is who, he, who we say he is, and he is God. And in fact, the term, the word for God in Greek is theos. The Gospel of John. 
refers to Jesus as God, as Theos, two times. Gospel of John, which talks all about the divinity of Christ, says he is Theos two times. Ignatius in his seven letters says Jesus is Theos 16 times, because that was an important, important belief that he showed us that Jesus is from day one, who we say he is, he is God. The flip side, not the divinity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ. Ignatius spoke heavily about the Eucharist and the importance of the Eucharist. And he says this here in a letter to the Ephesians. He says, just as the historical body of Jesus is no mere phantasm, meaning imagination, neither is the Eucharistic body of Christ some empty symbol. God takes on flesh and blood, and that flesh and blood is truly given to us in the Eucharist, the medicine of immoral immorality, immortality. I mistyped that. Forgive me, okay? You, got, you can't trust the spell check. Immortality, forgive me. The medicine of immortality and the antidote which wards off death but yields continuous life in union with Jesus Christ. Some people say today that the Eucharist, what we do with the Eucharist isn't what it was meant to be. That the Eucharist was something that Jesus did back then and then forevermore, it's just supposed to be like a remembrance. It's just supposed to be like something that's a nice thing, but it's not really the body and blood of Christ that's taking something a little bit too literally. Well, what St. Ignatius shows us here is that no, from the very beginning, the Eucharist is the center of our worship. It is the medicine of immortality. Sorry about the typo. And it is the means to continuous union with Jesus Christ. Anyone ever heard of a guy named Hank Hanegraaff? Anyone ever heard of Hank Hanegraaff? No one ever heard of him? Okay, some people in the back over there. Hank Hanegraaff, you can go look him up on the Google when you go home, is, was known as the Bible Answer Man, or is known as the Bible Answer Man. He was an evangelical Christian for all of his life, and he had a famous, I don't know if it was a radio show or podcast or whatever, where he would basically answer any question on the Bible. And he was, he knew the Bible, he knows the Bible inside out, backwards and forwards and all, better than anybody else. And he was the Bible Answer Man. Well, news was made probably about, you know, maybe six months ago, something like that, where he converted and became Orthodox. And he was baptized into the Orthodox Church. And the reason why, you can go read about him when you go home, but what he keeps on emphasizing, the center, when he kept looking at the church of the New Testament, the church of the first century, and the church of those who just came after the first century, was the centrality of the Eucharist. And he couldn't get around the fact that the church was built on the centerpiece of the church was not fellowship in this context, was fellowship in a Eucharistic context. And it was around one bread and one cup. And he kept seeing that over and over and over. So he couldn't get past that fact. So he said, instead of trying to make it work somehow and reconcile it, he jumped in with both feet and joined the Orthodox church. Back to Ignatius for a second here. Ignatius shows us Okay, there was a group of people at the time who didn't believe in the Eucharist, not because they denied the divinity of Christ, but because they denied the humanity of Christ. Okay, and the two are connected. Okay, because in order to believe that God could become man, okay, is the same as God becomes bread. Okay, if you don't believe that God can become man, how in the world is he gonna become bread? So these two concepts are connected and Ignatius shows us that to deny one is in fact to deny the other in this letter to the Tralians. Okay, these are all names of cities, okay? Jesus Christ, who was the race of David, the child of Mary, was truly born, ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died before the eyes of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, who also was raised truly from the dead, since his father raised him up, who in like manner will also raise us up, who believe on him. What he says right here, what he's saying, is the people said that God is God, 
and then all of a sudden, he appeared as a man for a little bit of time. But it was just an appearance. Think like the burning bush. Like God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. God appeared to them on the Sea of Galilee. God appeared to them at this table, but it was just an appearance of God. It wasn't really a man. He said, no, 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 no. He said, the faith that we received was, this truly is God in the flesh. He was born, he ate, he went to the bathroom, he drank, he died, he rose, just like any other man, except the rice part, but you know, we will. Okay, we'll get there eventually. And when he talks to these Tralians, okay, I didn't bring you some of the quotes. Some of them would be like, I want to say, some of them would be like a PG-13, some of the quotes that he talks to these Tralians, okay? They say to him, they say like God's uh, incarnation is a sham, right? But it's a stronger word than sham. And he says to them, you are the sham, okay? He says what he says to them. And I, it doesn't say it, but I think it, afterwards he meant to say, boom, like right after, like you are the sham, boom, you know, kind of a thing, right? That's the Eucharist. Third topic he spoke about, as I said, is the hierarchy of the church and the unity of the church. And this is the one, we'll sh I'll show you some quotes right here that, that, that St. Ignatius tells us about the unity of the church, the importance of the church as one Catholic body. He's the first person to use the word Catholic in the context of the church. Listen to what he says right here. And you tell me after I read these quotes, the unity of the church is expressed in what way? How is the unity of the church expressed in the church? Read, let's read this together. See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father, and the presbytery. Presbytery means priesthood. Presbyter is a priest. As you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons. Let's read the part about the priest one more time. No. <laughs> and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected to the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by the one to whom he has entrusted it. Meaning not anyone can just go and Eucharist. Like, okay, we don't want to go to the bishop. Like the bishop is presiding over the Eucharist. We want to do it over here. No, 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 Not just anyone just willy-nilly and up and, and get some bread and get some wine and get a, a mug and there you go. That's Eucharist. No, 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 no. It's the bishop and the bishop and the priest and there's a structure and there's a role. Wherever the bishop is, shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Let me ask you a question. The unity of the church in the teachings of St. Ignatius is expressed how? Or in who is the unity of the church expressed? In the bishop. It's the bishop who is the symbol of Jesus. Not saying that the bishop is Jesus, but what it's saying is, as the apostles were all gathered together, as they all gathered together around Christ, and as Christ submitted himself to the Father, what he's saying is the bishop is the expression of the unity where we may be in different places, different people, but we all come together under one hierarchy. When I say bishop, I mean the hierarchy more than a person. Look at this. It is well both to reverence God and the bishop. He who honors the bishop has been honored by God. He who does anything without the knowledge of the bishop does in reality serve the devil. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any agenda here. My only agenda is to show you that some of the, the, the beliefs that we're told, we have, to, we have to be smart and ask ourselves the authenticity of them. There's this idea that the hierarchy of the church, the bishops, the priests, all that stuff came much, much later when the church was corrupt and in, in the era where there was no prayer, no Bible reading, and that's where the, no, 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 no. Ignatius is writing within 50 years 
within 50 years of the last of the apostles, even get rid of, getting rid of John, okay? Getting rid of, of, of them within 50 years of their lives. And what he's saying is that everywhere I go, every church, every church I visit, there's a system. There's a bishop, there's a priest, there's a deacon. And that's the system that he saw in the churches. We're gonna read a longer passage right now and I'm, I promise I won't explain it. He talks about the unity of the church and it's so beautiful. It's heartfelt plea to the people for unity. I wanna read you the whole quote. Listen to what he says. The first part is about the bishop, but watch what he says. Give heed to the bishop that God also may give heed to you. My soul be for theirs that are submissive to the bishop, to the presbyters and to the deacons and may my portion be along with them in God. Labor together with one another. Listen to what he says about unity in the church versus division and separation in every man for himself. Labor together with one another. Strive in company together. Run together. Suffer together. Sleep together. Not a, like that though. Sleep together. Awake together as stewards and associates and servants of God. Please him under whom you fight and, uh, and from whom you receive your wages. Let none of you be found a deserter. See what he's saying right there? That's what I'm saying. The bishop is the sign of the unity that we're all together under one church, one, that's one flock and one shepherd. That's how Jesus said it. And no deserters, no one on their own. Let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, your patience as, your, as a complete panoply. Let your works be the charge assigned to you that you may receive a worthy recompense. Be long-suffering, therefore, with one another in meekness. As God is towards you, may I have joy of you forever. You can't divide Christ. You can't divide the church. And those who attempt to divide the church attempt to divide Christ and that's not a good thing that anyone want to fall into. So that's Ignatius, and that's his life. I'm going to say three lessons, three lessons that we can learn, but not really lessons as much as they are questions to ponder based on the life of Ignatius. And I'm not going to give you the answer to these questions. I'm just going to ask you, based on someone who lived so close to Christ and taught us what the church taught back then, makes us look at our lives and examine our lives in three areas. Question number one. Question number one is around the Eucharist. Do I approach the Eucharist in the same way as the apostles in the early church did? Do I view the Eucharist as, there it's spelled properly, the medicine of immortality and the means to continuous union with Jesus Christ? That's the first question. I don't have an answer for you. I'm saying the early church, guys who knew Jesus the best and the guys who knew the people who knew the people who knew Jesus best, for them, the Eucharist, was not an optional, was not a nice to have, was not a when you can, as long as it's not raining. For them, the Eucharist was the center of their lives. And everything started and ended at that Eucharist. And I will make the case that today, a lot of our weakness in our spiritual lives is because of our weakness and our faith in the Eucharist. All the problems in this world came from sin. What is sin? Sin is when man disconnected from God. Sin is when man disconnected from God. You had God and man together, and then man disconnected, problems came into the world. So if the problem is that man and God are disconnected, the solution is that man and God are connected or in union or in communion. And that's what the Eucharist is. It is the place where man and God unite. We wish to unite in a permanent forever for all eternity, and we will. But for now, the best that we got is in a weekly basis that we come and we unite to God. And when I say that, I'm not saying just receiving the communion like in a physical way, but it's our faith in the communion. That's question one. Ask yourself, what's your view of the Eucharist? Is it in line with the people who gave us the church, our founding fathers? Two, about the church. 
Do I subject myself to the church or do I seek to have the church subjected to me? And I don't have an answer for that one. That's what you got to answer. Like, am I here as a consumer or a contributor? Am I here to say, what can the church do for me? Or what can I do for the church? I always say, sometimes people come to me and say, the church has this rule. We want to do this, we want to do this. I say, look, my job is not to make rules. My job is to obey rules. Like once you put on the uniform, church is kind of like military when you're in the priesthood. Like I just report to the commanding officer. I'm not here to say, like, is my, you know, I'm a private, whatever. Yeah, I think what the general said is stupid. Let's do this instead. Like it doesn't work in the military. It doesn't work in the church. I'm not here to make decisions. I'm here to obey decisions and, 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 and do my best to understand them. But even when I don't understand them, I'm here to obey. One of my fears, and I'm not saying nothing to nobody, it's St. Ignatius talking. One of my fears is we have this consumeristic mindset towards the church. We treat it like a restaurant. And we say, I like the food over here better than the food over here. And we start to, reviews, there's reviews. You know, you can review churches. And now this one, and there's reviews on churches. And then we come, and if the service is good, we leave a tip. If the service is good, we leave a tip. But even, come on, man, at least the, re the restaurant gets 15%. Even here, we struggle to get the 10, okay? <laughs> What is my view towards the church? Me subject to church or church subject to me? Third question. Do I believe that Jesus is God? And there's a quick follow-up before you jump to say yes and, 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 and write that one down real quick. Is to what extent am I willing to go to unite with him? Ignatius shows us the extent to which a man is willing to walk to be with Christ. I said this a couple weeks ago in the sermon for those who are here. Is so many of us want the life of Christ, but we don't want the lifestyle of Christ. And what St. Ignatius said is he realized that to get the life of Christ, to get the fruit, you must go to the root. And to, have, to be where Christ ended up, we want to be with him, but we don't want to walk with him. We want to end up where he ended up, but we don't want to walk the road that he walked. And St. Ignatius shows us that someone who truly loves Christ the way he did knew that you can't have one without the other. I cannot have the end of Christ without the walk of Christ. Christ is the alpha and he is the omega, but he also is the way in between them. And if we want to end up where he ended up, and to what extent are we willing to walk the same walk that he walked? He says it this way, St. Ignatius, one of his quotes from the letter to the Smyrnians, chapter four. He says, to share in his passion, I go through everything. And if you ask me, my personal lesson that I take away, what touched me so much about this life of St. Ignatius was someone who, like I said, didn't die for a principle, didn't die for a philosophy, didn't die for even a teaching. He didn't even say, I die for the truth. He died for a person. And St. John Chrysostom, in writing about St. Ignatius, said this was a man, quote, seething with divine eros. Eros meaning like love, but in a, in a, in a very powerful way. He was saying this was a man who loved Jesus so much that he was willing to do anything to be united with him, even to walk to his own death and even to beg the people where he was going not to interfere with that death. It's a good lesson for us as we approach Christmas that we see Christ sacrificing everything for us. And then like I spoke about in the sermon today, is calling us to be willing and ready to do the same. St. Ignatius shows us to share in his passion I go through everything. My question to you, I'll leave you with this. The Eucharist, the church, and to the love, to what extent? 
To what extent am I willing to go to share, to commune, to unite with Christ, both in my life and potentially beyond that as well, whatever life has in front of me? Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great example that you gave to us, Lord, and St. Ignatius, and really all the fathers who, who allow us to stand here today and gave us the church as we know it. I pray that you would help us to learn from their example. I pray that you'd help us to see not just what they did on the outside, Lord, but the love that was behind it and the same spirit and zeal and love that they had for you and for your church, that we would have just a little piece of that as well, especially as we approach the season of Christmas where you, Lord, sacrificed everything for us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, with the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.